Welcome to First Reading Podcast, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week, following our wonderful conversation with Mark Brettler, we are back into many episodes again. So we do have a uh, sort of Great Dane of an episode coming up in a few weeks. But this week, uh, we've just got sort of a Chihuahua-type episode for you today <laughs> on uh, Genesis chapter 11. So Rachel, take it away. Yeah, we are back in the Old Testament lectionary readings, which causes us to say, yay! Although it was fun to do a series on the Psalms, and I hope that was helpful for uh, for anybody who either was preaching on the Psalms or is thinking about doing the series on the Psalms someday. It's a great uh, book to do a sermon series on. So we are in Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 11. And what chapter 11 does in the book of Genesis is finishes out what we call in the scholarly world the prologue. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are thought of as kind of a preamble, kind of a beginning uh, before the beginning, before Genesis 12 with Abraham. And so what we have here is the finale of the beginning story and the beginning of the rest of the story, if you're thinking of like Paul Harvey and that kind of mm-hmm. deal. Right. So right after this episode and the, in Babel, in Babel, it begins the genealogy, uh, the long list of names, which leads us eventually to Abraham. Um, so this is an interesting chapter in that it both ends the prologue and begins Abraham's story right before we get into chapter 12, the Lech Lecha, the go, go forth um, that God says to Abraham. But before we get there, we have this episode with the Tower of Babel. And uh, I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the exegetical stuff that's going on here. It's a really interesting episode because it in some ways mirrors the presentation of God that has been already in the text, but it's different in a lot of ways from the presentation which is going to follow in the subsequent chapters of Genesis. So we'll get there. We'll kind of walk through it now. Uh, in verse 1, I just wanted to point out uh, that there's kind of a fun way that they say things in Hebrew, which gets a little bit missed in translation. Uh, this says, "Vayehi kol haaretz safa echad udvarim achadim," and what that is translated as is, "Everyone on earth had the same language and the same words," uh, but in Hebrew, it's, "All the earth had one lip and one <laughs> words." Uh, and that's just kind of a delightful way to say one language. And we do something similar in English. We say one tongue, which we, we think not immediately of the physical actual tongue, but we do the same thing with just a different body part. So right. kind of a fun, fun little note, always bringing attention to body imagery. Yep. So verse two, then um, it says they migrated from the east in the ancient Near Eastern mythological mindset, the East was where life began. It was where it was kind of the mythical land. And so when you have things coming from the East, uh, what's interesting for that in this chapter, which, as I said, is this kind of transition chapter between the mythical prologue and the more uh, what we could kind of call historical story of Abraham, is it's even in that image, it's moving things from the land of myth to more the land of, you know, what we would know of as history. Uh, so they're coming from the east, and they're coming to a valley and to a city. So in verse 3, it says they found a valley, and they settled there. And then it says they said to one another, come, 
And that Hebrew word gets repeated throughout this text. It's hava, hava, kind of a come now. And then in Hebrew, uh, or in English, it says, come, let us make bricks. But Hebrew is, let us brickify bricks and let us burn them as burnings. Hebrew mm-hmm. has this neat little thing where while they want to emphasize something, they will use both the verb form and the noun form. So let us brickify bricks. And what they're wanting to emphasize is that they are beginning to settle in to civilization. They're beginning to actually not just wander in the wilderness, but they're going to start to establish themselves. And that establishing goes very, very quickly from just kind of settling in to something with a lot more grandeur to it, a lot more ambition, because right away again in verse 4, they say, come, they say, hava, we even now have these bricks, so let us make ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the sky to make a great name. It's like, wow, okay, you, you started brickifying bricks, and now you've gone way, your head is literally in the clouds, or that's where you're wanting it to be. So, boy, that escalated quickly. They went from just figuring out how to brickify bricks to literally wanting to conquer everything. And it reminds me of the old TV show, Pinky and the Brain, where every day <laughs> the little mouse Pinky asks the littler mouse brain, gee, Brian, what you want to do tonight? The same, the same thing, we, thing we do every we night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. (laughs) So, but why are they doing that? Is it just a love of power? And here's where when we listen closely to the text, we hear that as their voices peter out from this ringing statement of conquest, they admit that their delusions of grandeur stem from fear. Hmm. Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the sky to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over all the world. It's almost this fear that if you cannot control something, it will control you. Remember that. Now in verse five, we get this presentation of God, which is kind of delightful. It says, the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that that humans had built. And what I find so delightful about this is that they brickify bricks and then they say, come, let us make it a giant city with a huge tower with its head in the sky. And in this image of God, God's got to kind of kneel down to see it. You know, mm-hmm. he's got to kind of like take a knee just to get a closer look at this, at this thing. So it's this image of this giant God and these itty bitty human ambitions. But he does come down. He comes down. He takes a divine squat and he notices, huh, they're one people with one language, and look what sort of a thing they are beginning to do. Nothing will be impossible for them. All that they imagine, they'll do. So there's something in this that's incongruous right away, because you have this image of this divine God who's got to squat down just to get a look at this itty-bitty tower, but at the same time, he finds it problematic. And what he finds problematic is that nothing will be impossible for them. And so then in verse 7, Hava, God says. It's the same word that they said in, in verses 3 and 4. God says, come. And in a mirroring of that common plural form of let us brickify and make bricks, let us burn them, let us build a city, God says, Hava, let us go down and confuse their lips so that we will not understand. And I just wonder, is that, is that a tinge of fear that we hear in the divine voice? 
Is this fast-growing capability of creation something that causes God fear? And if so, why? Shouldn't the growth and capability of his children be something that God celebrates the way we do with our kids? Well, we sort of celebrate, right? (laughs) I mean, Tim, I would be willing to bet that your first reaction, the first time you saw your kids walking, your very first reaction was celebration, right? Sure, yeah. Then do you remember your second reaction? Oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Cover all the outlets. Get everything up high. We are in trouble. Nothing they propose to do will be out of their reach. Yeah, right, exactly. They can reach anything now. So I don't know if that's the image that's going on here, but it does seem to help us make sense of what is causing this issue for the divine being. And then in verse 8, this is the kind of tragic moment of the story, because the same fear that motivated the people to begin to build the tower in the first place becomes realized. Their very efforts to avoid being scattered over the whole earth is exactly what God does at this point, because somehow the ability to reach the impossible was dangerous, and God needs to solve that. So, preaching pitfalls. If you do preach this in, um, in conjunction with Pentecost, which is the church festival that's happening this day, be especially on your guard for supersessionism. Supersessionism is this idea that the New Testament uh, supersedes the Old Testament. It in some way makes null and void the covenants or ideas of the Old Testament. And you could easily do that here where it's like, well, in Babel, in the Old Testament, God had to confuse the people. But in the New Testament, God is bringing people back together. This suggests that what is going on in the Old Testament is somehow no longer valid. And that is false. It is actually a heresy. No less than Paul himself in Romans says, by no means, when he asks the rhetorical question, has God abandoned the Jews? And so our response when we are asked if the New Testament nullifies the Old Testament should be also by no means. Plus, it's a terrible reading of this story. God doesn't reunify people through giving them one language in Pentecost. He works with what they've got. He gives them the ability to understand each other in all of their different diversity and in all of their different uh, languages and life situations. And is that not a hope for all of us to understand each other? So my two sermon angles for today would be Preach Babel of it as an example of what happens when you live life out of fear, when you let fear control your actions, when you are so afraid of something else controlling you that you act first to control it. And the second thing I would suggest to preach is preach Pentecost as redeeming even the worst intentions of, huma- of humanity. If the worst intentions of humanity are arrogance and fear in Genesis 11, then how does God combat that at Pentecost? by helping us understand each other in the midst of all that makes us different. Well done. Not bad for a little chihuahua. <laughs> yeah, thanks for letting us get a little peek under the hood of a, of a text that often seems really mysterious and strange mm-hmm. in that first part of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is where uh, we give the plug for our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Go there to check out uh, past episodes that you might have missed and to see pictures of our lovely faces and uh, all sorts of other resources that might be handy to you. 
You can also find First Reading on your podcast app or on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And uh, that's about all I can think of to say. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a great place to end then. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks so much for listening.